Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 1, Episode 7, The Great Exchange, Romans 1, 18-25. When you hear the word sin, what comes to your mind? The, the breaking of a commandment? Doing harm to others? Breaking a moral code of some kind, either external or perhaps your own internal conscience? This week on Romans Untangled, we will look at the premier definition of what sin is in all the Bible. Hey, I want to welcome you back. Again, this is Pastor Steve Treichler out of Hope Community Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, We just celebrated Easter here, a beautiful Holy Week. Uh, I hope that you and yours are doing well. Uh, If you remember right, we've been talking every time about another Bible study tool. Every week I want to give you something. And and for those of you brand new to the Bible, hopefully this will give you some, some ways to go about reading the Bible and studying the Bible and learning about the Bible that will relatively quickly uh, on-ramp you into ways that you can understand things that maybe you felt were above your pay grade, so to speak. Those of you who've been uh, students of the Bible, may have been around the Bible for a long time, these are some great insights and ways, kind of tricks of the trade, if you want to call it, for a guy who's been preaching for about 25 years, of ways that you yourself can study Scripture and get to know it better. We've looked at, so far, just to kind of review the tools we've went through, the, the nature of letters, because the book of Romans is a letter, and how does that work with communication? We've talked about versions of the English Bible, the going all the way from more of a para, uh, paraphrase look at it, all the way to word for word. We've talked about connecting words. We're going to repeat that again today, um, not in fullness, but I'm going to go back to that. What are these little connecting words at the beginning of sentences when you look at a literal version of the Bible, like the New American Standard Version or the ESV? We've talked about how to read the Bible. And if we read the Bible, the we believe the correct way to read the Bible is actually looking that all of this will point to Jesus Christ. And so in some senses, we read our Bible backwards. We we start knowing about who Jesus is and who, what he has done. And in a sense, then that brings us to completion from uh, some of the things in the Old Testament. And then last week, we looked at just a basic outline of Romans. And if you remember right, I, I gave you just a very simple, uh, very simple outline that was, we have an introduction, we have the theme verses, which we're going to go over again and again and again. Uh, you'll hear them. I'll repeat them again today so we don't get we don't forget them. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17. So important for all of our discussion about Romans. Then I just call it two things. The gospel explained, the middle of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 11. And then the gospel lived, chapter 12 through uh, the middle of chapter 15. And then we just have a conclusion. Uh, Paul's talking to about a variety of issues that he's dealing with there in the church. Okay, this week, what I want to talk about is the value of commentaries. And and basically, to be straight with you, this podcast is a commentary. I'm, I'm helping you to understand Romans. I'm giving you some insights. I'm helping you to see different ways to look at it. And that's the value of a commentary. I, I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus... I was reading the Gospel of John, and I read a very simple commentary by a man by the name of William Barclay. And I was so blown away by just learning things about uh, John from from him and, and learning how these things put uh, come together and historical facts and different things. 
and and over the years, I I I I've started realizing that yeah, it's a it's not a you know not a bad place to begin. Any commentary is not a bad place to begin. But you know, you just read from one person's perspective, it's going to be one sided, and perhaps there's some things in there that later on you might disagree with, and there might be some things now with William Barclay that I might potentially disagree with. But if you look at uh, the best kind of commentaries. Those are the ones that are going to give you multiple options. They're going to look at a passage and say, well, so-and-so says this, and -and so-and-so says this, and of course they are going to argue for the one they think is best. But they're going to give a fairly fair representation of the other views. These, in my opinion, are the best commentaries. Yes, it takes more work because instead of just reading the author's point of view, you're reading others. But man, you can just skip past that. <laughs> you don't have to read all of it. If you don't, you don't find some somebody's uh, view on something compelling. Just skip down to the next one. And I find these great. And so, let me tell you. Now you're probably asking, where, where, where do you find these? There is an amazing website out there right now called BestCommentaries.com. I'm not kidding you. It really is called bestcommentaries.com. I'm going to navigate there, and I know it's terrible to do here with with just audio, but uh, you go to bestcommentaries.com, and then you just look at it, and it said OT Books stands for the Old Testament books, and NT Books books stands for the New Testament. You'd click on New Testament. You'd go over then to Commentaries on Romans. You'd click on that, and it is going to rank them. It's going to give you all of the different great commentaries that have been written over the last... 75 years or so, and it is going to help you know not only what how they scored as far as how, how they're ranked by scholars, journal reviews, it says in site users, but then it also gives you these, it gives you a tag and it tells you what's the, what's the value of this. So it's technical, pastoral, or devotional. And devotionals are good, but they don't really help you to study it, uh, to really what's the meaning of the passage. And just let me offer the first three that are listed here. If you want to do a deep dive into Romans, these top three are fantastic. Douglas Moo's commentary, and you've heard me refer to him often, I think is the best one out there. And I don't always agree with Douglas Moo, but he gives the options. And so I can look at it and say, yeah, actually, you chose this one. He argues for it, but I, I would lean more this way. Um, and so I think that's fantastic. He's got a this commentary. It's put out the by the series. is called the NICNT, which is the New International Commentary on the New Testament. But like I say, you can just go to bestcommentaries.com, and you can see it right there. Now, he's got two versions. He's got a second edition. Make sure you pick up the second edition because he's got some helpful things in there. Second one is by a man by the name. He's actually my advisor when I went to Bethel Seminary here in St. Paul, Tom Schreiner. He wrote a book uh, called Romans uh, also, and it's a fantastic one as well. He gives options as well and argues. In some cases, he argues differently than Moo, and that's fine. Uh, These guys are friends, you know, so they love each other. They both love the Lord. They're just looking at it a little bit differently. Um, And so he's also got a second edition to his commentary. Make sure you pick up the second edition if you're going to do it. The third one is kind of the classic one, but it was written in 1975. So that, of course, is 46 years ago. So he is not going to deal with any of the scholarship that has happened from 1975 on. I think some people tried to even update it. I'm not sure that uh, this man is still alive. His name is C.E.B., three initials, must be very important, Cranfield. 
Cranfield's is one of the classic commentaries on Romans. Of course, these are going to be more technical in nature. Uh, they're going to be they're going to try to help you get into the initial meanings of words. To be honest with you, if you don't know the Greek, I would probably tell you not to look at Cranfield. It's going to be a more difficult commentary. But the other two are not going to assume that you understand the Greek language, which again most of us don't. Uh, I want to uh, highlight Douglas Moo's commentary or Tom Schreiner's. And again, there's going to be times where uh, you know we're all going to disagree with them. Heck, I disagree with myself. I've been studying this book for 30 years. <laughs> I disagree with myself sometimes. So uh, let me encourage you to perhaps in your study here at some point in time, if you really want to keep going, to go ahead and pick up a great commentary. Okay, let's get into our study. I want to remind you of the theme. I'm going to do this all the way through when we, we've got two more um, podcasts after this one, just in chapter one. Let me read it to you. This is Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So again, this theme we covered a couple weeks ago, I'm not going to go over it all again, but just remember, this is what this book is about. It is about the gospel, it's the power of God, and it brings salvation to believers. And the reason for that and how it works is, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we started talking about the options of what does that phrase mean, and, and we're going we're gonna to see it even today that there's, there's helpful things to understand what this word means. And by the time we get to the middle of chapter three, we will land on what we think that term really means. How, what is this righteousness of God and how is it being, how was it revealed? The gospel is revealed, okay? So today, uh, last week I did an overview of the rest of chapter one, uh, chapter one verses 18 to 32. I want to do in the next three sessions, this one and then two more, I want to do a kind of a, a deep dive into some of the things that are being uh, referred to here. This week, I think I'm just so excited to look at with you this great exchange that happens, and we'll talk more about that. Next week, I want to hone in on why does the Apostle Paul pick up the issue of sexuality and immorality and sexuality? And primarily, why does he pick up the issue of homosexuality? What, what, what's going on there and why is it? I want to devote a whole podcast to that because not only I think it was important at the time that he wrote that, it's extremely important in our culture today as we look at uh, some of the ways that um, sexuality is being understood and talked about both in the culture and in the church. And so I really want to do that. And then the lastly, we're going to look at what is this? What's going on in the minds of people? Uh, and, and they have this law that's in their hearts. It says, or it says that that they that they know the the uh, the, the law of God that's that's in their hearts, and that's from Romans one thirty two. We're going to spend a whole time just on that. So let me read Romans one eighteen to twenty five. Like I said, we're doing different versions today, and all I want to do today is just basically highlight all of the different interesting words that are in here and see how they come together. That's all, that's all we're going to do. So here we go. Romans 1, 18 to 25. This week I'm reading from the New International Version. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's our passage. That's what I want to hone in on today. And I just want to walk back through it. So we're going to go right back up to the top. So if you have a Bible open, I know many of you don't. If you're like me, you listen to podcasts when you drive and please don't do that while you're driving. But if you do have a Bible, open it up and look at Romans 1, 18, and we're just going to kind of walk through this. So I want you to see some things that are really important here. Here we go. Verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, remember what it was, what's said in Romans 1, 17. So it says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? So there's something that is happening here when the righteousness of God is being, is being revealed, that the wrath of God being revealed the righteousness of God will, will, will come to be the solution to that. It, but it, and it also says it is being revealed. It's not a future thing. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God being poured upon those who have turned their backs on him is being revealed currently. Not one day will be, is being revealed. And it says it's being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness or unrighteousness of people. Remember the righteousness of God was being uh, be revealed, but here it's the unrighteousness of people. And now he's going to unpack that little bit about who these people are. These people are those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, very important you know understand uh, a couple things here. Suppress. The word suppress means literally to stop or to you know, if I'm suppressing you from scoring a basket in basketball, I'm defending you. I'm keeping you from doing it. The, the best analogy I like to think of is if I, if I take a beach ball and I hold it underwater, I'm suppressing it down. It is an active thing. So as, as people are looking at God, it's going to say here, and they're denying him and they're committing acts of wickedness and thought and deed and and, and character and all that, there's actually, it's it's not a just like, like a, oh, I didn't know better or whatever. He's saying here, there's actually a suppression taking place by their wickedness. We get to verse 19 and it says, since, now that's one of those connecting words. Remember we talked about connecting words? Since is a word that brings us into the reason why. Why are they suppressing the truth? How can that be? Well, Paul says this, He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Seriously? Like, wait a minute now. You're telling me that God has has, has made it so that we can see him? Well, let's keep reading. He says, for, now that's one of those connecting words, right? Those, Those logical connection words. And four can mean one of two things. It can either be a reason or it can be an explanation. 
So he's explaining here. Let me explain that, he says. And he goes on and he says this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. And then he stops and he gives what he means by that. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So what's he saying here? He's saying that by just observing creation, God screams to you about his invisible qualities. You can't see them with your eyes, right? But he only, not everything about God, there's two things about God. What are they? His eternal power and his divine nature. In other words, you look at the majesty, like for us in Minnesota, a lot of it goes to like some of our beautiful areas. And for us, we have a very beautiful area up north called the Boundary Waters. Uh, and it's just an amazing area up there. And you, you go up there and it's just gorgeous. And you're, you're late at night, there's no light pollution, and you can just see the stars. And all of this will scream to you, Paul says, two things about God, that he's powerful and that he's other, okay? So his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, there's something way more powerful than me, and there's something way more intelligent and other. It's it's not like I, I'm not part of this. This is, it's, it's divine. It's divine nature. That's all that you get out of creation. You don't get everything about God just by looking at a tree or looking at a, at a, uh, at the stars or looking at the beautiful rock formations or, or looking at a dog or, or looking at a cat. Well, actually a cat would, would prove the existence of the devil, but that's another whole, <laughs> that's another whole thing. So anyway, the, these are the things that are, and it says they're clearly seen. Now that's amazing. That's Paul at his best. Do you see what he did there? He said the invisible qualities are clearly seen, but they're not seen with the human eyes. They're seen deep down within our soul. Let me just tell you something here. I've been, I've been doing this. I've been a professional Christian since 1987. I've been involved in ministering to people in one way, shape, or form uh, for, for, for quite a while. I know many of you are like, dude, you're old. And, and, and I am. Okay, I admit it. Since 1987, I have never once convinced anyone that there's a God. Now, there's been people who come to our church as atheists or been in part of our, our different studies or different things as atheists, and they become followers of Christ. But when I, when I ask them, what was it that made you believe, just step one, is there a God? It was never anything that I said to them. Now, that doesn't mean the, the, great, the great apologetics ministries and things out there to prove that, you know, seven proofs why there's a God. They're good. They are. But ultimately, it just comes to a place where people say, I just, I just knew it. I mean, I just, in the depth of, I needed to know that I wasn't committing intellectual suicide, but, but I, I just knew that there was a God. Then, po, then Paul goes on to say, so that people are without excuse. The result of us is there's no excuse. We can't say, oh, I didn't know. Everybody knows. So Paul is saying that this happens not because we have the Bible, not because we have a, a, a pastor or a friend or a missionary or someone. No, it's just because of creation. We see that, and yet we suppress that truth. He goes on. And he says, for all the, although they knew God, and the they here is referring to everybody who would, would not necessarily learn about God from those other things I talked about. Just 
being a human being in this world. For although they knew God like that, now it's not talking about they knew God like you, you know, uh, knowing Jesus Christ or or part of a church or that that's not what he's talking about. He's just saying they knew God like that, his invisible qualities, that he's divine, that he's other, and that he's powerful, that he's that. And then it says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Okay, so what what this would say then is the proper response to when you when you feel and you know this God, and you may not do it do it exactly the way, say, a, a church would do it, but there's something in you that would just say, there is the other, and I need to glorify him, and I need to give thanks to him. But when that doesn't happen, he says, uh, their futile heart, excuse me, their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so instead of that, because they don't do that, they claim to be wise, but they became fools, and here it is. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the true God. They exchanged that. And it goes on to say they, they made down, they made images. You know, this is immortal. They look like mortal human beings or birds or animals or reptiles. This goes back to like kind of pagan idolatry. We made, we made, we made a, a God out of stone and we worship that God or something. But, the, but there's something right about pagan idolatry and that it, it, it's telling me there's something out there, but then they're wrong and then they think that they can manage it. You know, if you look in the history of the world, you have the great Greek and Roman gods and how they would worship them and some of these things. But Paul's going to go even deeper than that in just a moment. So just don't think, oh, he's just talking about, you know, people of the old who bow down before some type of idolatry and all that. And he's, let's keep going here. He says, therefore, because of this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I'm going to hone in on this next week, so I'm not going to really land on it this week. All I want to land in on is this idea of gave them over. So what 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 actually is God doing here? So remember, God shows himself just through creation. And then it says, when people don't respond to God that way, he gives them over to, in this case, it's going to be about sexuality. But if you go to the end of that chapter, it's a whole list of things. It's not just sexual uh, sin. And we'll, we'll, we'll go into that really fully next week. I know that's a little bit of a tease, but yeah, maybe it was meant to, meant to be. He says, he gave them over. In other words, he's saying this, and this is what God is doing. He's saying, I'm not going to stop you. The, the, the God intervening in your life when you're chasing after things other than him. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just not going to stop you. I'm going to let you go. Folks, that is, we're going to see that phrase used uh, two more times in this chapter. We'll see it here in just one moment here in verse 25. This concept of the exchange that is taking place will be repeated uh, three and really kind of alluded to a fourth time here in Romans chapter one. And yet this phrase, God gave them over, that is also repeated three times. And, and basically, folks, it's this. The revealed wrath of God is him giving you over. In other words, it's him not stopping you anymore. 
It'd be like, uh, you know, let's say you, you're trying to do a diet and, and you have a friend and you say, here's the deal. I want you to, to, um, I want you to put a lock on the refrigerator. And I, every time I'm going to go, uh, trying to do that, I'm, I, I want you to stop me. And so, but every time that you go to the refrigerator, you, you are, excuse me, every time you're trying to diet, you're, you just cheat. You just find some other ways to do this. And you, you end up during this diet where this friend is trying to help you and, and you just end up gaining weight. And finally, the friend just says, I'm done. I've unlocked the refrigerator. I'm done. I'm not going to help you anymore. I'm not going to stop you. That's what, that's what the wrath of God is here. You, 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 you want to find joy in those things? I'm not going to stop you. How's that working for you? Is what God is basically saying here. And we see this very clearly here if we look at verse 25. So if you got your Bible with you, man, look at this verse. Because this verse right here is the premier definition of sin in all of Scripture. It says this, they exchanged the truth of God, about God, for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. So he gets a little bit more broad than just what they called idolatry where you bow down to birds and animals and reptiles in verse 23. And now he says, here's what's actually taking place. God gets exchanged, and an exchange is where you make a trade, right? I've got uh, some money, you've got uh, Jack and the Beanstalk here, and I'm trading you, right? i got a cow or whatever, the, the bean seeds, or I don't remember how that exactly works, but there's a trade, right? And, and, I, and I, I trade. What do I trade? Truth of God for a lie. And the worship and service of the Creator, I'm exchanging that for worship and service of creation, This is huge, you see this. This is the best definition of sin in the whole Bible. It is any time that you or I exchange creator for creation. If you go back to Genesis 3, the serpent in the Garden of Eden was telling them, listen, when you eat of the fruit that God, he, again, he it sounds like maybe he, he told you maybe not to eat it, but whatever, and he's lying to them. But then he says this, he says, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and are you ready for this? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wait a minute now. I'm not going to be in this dependent relationship upon God who's other than me. He's divine, and he's powerful, and he's other. No, I'm going to rise up on my own, and I am going to be my own God. All of the Old Testament can be summed up in one commandment, all of the commands. And it's the first command on Moses' tablets. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, idolatry is what sin is. Anytime you make a trade for God, worshiping and serving him at the core of who we are, that thing that makes you alive, anytime you make a trade for that and you put in something else, that other thing, whatever, you've exchanged creator for creation. This can be bad things, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, right? But it can also be good things. Family, job, church involvement, wealth, relationship, status, approval of others, comfort, entertainment. Anything I let in that becomes the thing that is 
another God before God, that thing which satisfies me, it then becomes a bad thing. In fact, it actually becomes an idol. The best definition of sin there is is that sin is actually idolatry. No, in America, we don't bow down to stone. I mean, I suppose we have a few people, but you know, generally speaking, we don't bow down and have religious services to pagan things. And yet, um, we do it all the time. I, I, I don't just do this once, twice a day. I do it hundreds of times a day where I exchange creator for creation. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, when he's teaching Timothy about what to do with rich people in the world, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God has made creation for our enjoyment, but not our worship. And you might think that seems like a very fine line. Well, it is. It's the defin- definition between living in the fullness of the way God created us and living in idolatry and sin. So let's summarize where we were at today with this amazing passage. How, how are people responsible for their actions, even if they've never heard of the Bible, never heard of Jesus, or never even heard the name God? Well, they can clearly see the unseeable qualities of God and the power and the otherness. And ultimately then, what is sin? Sin is exchanging creator for creation. And therefore, the revealed wrath of God that is in chapter one here is God basically saying, you want that? You think that's going to satisfy you? You want to chase a career out of your life and you think that's the thing that's going to make you life to the detriment of your other relationships and your, and your family and your personal health and your relationship with me? You know what? I'm not going to stop you anymore. Go ahead. So if that's true, the best definition of sin is not the breaking of a commandment, but it is the great exchange that happens in the human heart when we make a trade for the worship and service of the Creator to the worship and service of creation, and this is idolatry. And it can be from good things, good or bad things. When they become God things, they become idolatry. And the wrath of God upon that is actually him just saying, you want that? Go ahead. Let it try to fill you. What are some of your idols? Mine are comfort, harmony, approval of others, control. If you ask my wife, she'll give you a whole list more. The way out of this is the opposite of the way in. Repent of these things to acknowledge, worship, serve, and thank God and Jesus Christ what he's done for you. That I don't, I don't worship comfort. I don't worship harmony. I don't worship the approval of people. And I don't worship being in control. If COVID has taught us anything, I have so little control over anything. This week, may you through Jesus Christ look at your own life and see some of the idolatry that you have. And because of the grace of God, we can look at that and start to go after it and say, Jesus, I want to simply follow you. Next week, we'll look at why does Paul talk about sexual sin in Romans chapter 1. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.